let's continue our exploration, inquiry, explanation, and unpacking of some of what uh, soul-making dharma and sensing the soul, practice sensing the soul might bring to the whole domain of ethics and how we think about ethics, how we relate to ethics and our ethical choices, our ethical life. How soul-making dharma can really include ethics and um, how it might support our notion of ethics, our idea of the ethical life, um, perhaps in ways that uh, it needs supporting these days. And uh, indeed, that, that's where we kind of started with this idea that uh, perhaps there are some needs that we can identify, and we listed seven or eight needs that any sort of approach to ethics, system of ethics, uh, might uh, have to incorporate um, somehow these days. At least that's how I would think of it. Um, And so we've gone through a few, and they're all completely interrelated and imply each other, involved in each other, but... um, Today I'd like to uh, explore a little bit uh, the need um, related to the sense and the idea of what a human is, what a human being is and what a human being can be. So how we think about ethics and how we approach ethics must somehow uh, impinge and affect, um, hopefully in a helpful way, the sense and the notion of what a human being is and what a human being can be. That that whole idea and sense of our humanity is very much, and should be very much, tied in with our sense of ethics. So that the two, our sense of ethics and our sense of our humanity, should imply each other should feed each other, should support each other, should be congruent with each other. So just to make sure that um, all this doesn't just sound like a sort of very waffly exercise in sort of abstract philosophy or worse sort of history of Western society or Western philosophy, um, I wonder if we can really, really get a sense, help to get a sense of really grounding grounding what we're talking about and what we're attempting to talk about today in in a real lived sense in a real uh, real experiential uh, feel for oh yes this is what we're talking about and this matters so perhaps um most people hopefully hopefully most people who should be talk who should be listening to this talk have had enough experience with soul-making dharma practice that they've, um, for instance, just had even just a couple of images, perhaps, that have really touched them deeply. The whole experience of the way the imaginal opened up and how pertinent it was to their 
particulars of their life and their situation and the sense of beyonds there and the sense of the other elements and duty and beauty and eros and loving and loving and being loved and eternality and reverence and grace and all of that most people listening hopefully will have had at least one or two experiences where the soul has has been really impacted and and in that as we say because uh, when when an imaginal image is allowed to, to do its thing, the soul-making dynamic is not interrupted, not blocked, um, there's the image and as an erotic imaginal object, so to speak, and then the self will also become imaginal. So hopefully, um, most people listening will have had that kind of experience, maybe even once or twice, where the whole imaginal constellation has begun uh, to to subsume the sense of self. The self becomes uh, sensed with soul, imaginal, so to speak. And so if you can remember back to those experiences and the sort of profundity of them and the sense of, oh, wow, 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 this is really another order of sense of things uh, than I'm used to, a different order of a sense of self than I'm used to. Different even than emptiness or dissolving in jhana or metta or whatever it is. So if you can just get a sense of that, is that possible to remember that? You don't have to invoke it completely, but just remember a little bit about it right now. And then if we can perhaps delineate a spectrum at the other end of the spectrum, one end of the spectrum, you have such an experience of your humanity. So not just a sense of yourself, what I want to, what I want to point to is your sense of your humanity. That in that, uh, when the self was brought in and involved in the soul-making dynamic, and the self became imaginal, and the self was sensed with soul, Yes, there's a different sense of self, but with that too, there's a a different sense of your humanity, your depths, who you are, your relationship with divinity or Buddha nature and the cosmos and all of that. So you can just remember the sense of your humanity there, the sense and the logos also of your humanity there as part of the sense of self that was there when you were sensing yourself with soul. So maybe that's on a spectrum, at one end of a spectrum, and at the other end is just um, just the normal, perhaps, sense of self, sense of humanity, that's more accurate, the normal sense of humanity that we, uh, most people, walk around with and move around with today in our um, culture of Western secular modernity. Just the normal sense of what a human being is, the normal feel of that, the normal idea of that. Of course, we could go further and when someone's full of self-hatred, etc. But let's just stay with the, 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 that sort of norm, that norm of Western modernity. So that norm of Western modernity, that sense of your humanity, of our humanity at one end, and at the other end, this sort of the sense of humanity when uh, the self is sensed with soul, part of an imaginal constellation, self, other world.
maybe in the middle, there's a, for some there's a sort of grey area, or not so much a grey area, but a continuum, let's say, um, where, depending on what circles you move in, etc., there may be a sort of prevalence of kind of, I don't know what you call them, new age ideas, etc., about angels and being shamans or witches and that sort of identification and maybe even practices and rituals, etc. Also maybe the sense of your humanity that you might have had if you take seriously the Bodhisattva vow or if you're in a ceremony of taking the Bodhisattva vows and feeling the self as Bodhisattva with that aspiration Perhaps that affected the sense of your humanity in some way, perhaps. Or the idea of having Buddha nature, or being Buddha nature. There are many possibilities. And at the risk of being contentious, let's put that in, in, in the middle. More, more what I'm pointing to is not is more just when there's a sort of idea of something, and maybe a kind of practice, but it hasn't really turned the soil and ignited in the way that you know that soul-making practice can. So there's a kind of uh, some, something, there's a kind of different ideation that's, that's supported by the people around you. Maybe there's ceremonies and rituals and uh, certain language, etc., maybe certain practices, maybe a change in experience, but it's not quite of the order of what we're talking about when soul-making practice really ignites and the imaginal really uh, really gets going, the authentic imaginal. So we have this spectrum. The norms of um, secular modernity, this sort of middle ground where certain ideas are sort of uh, doing something in the psyche, maybe certain practices, certain rituals, certain ceremonies, certain communities and languages. And then the soul-making sense of one's humanity. And so just, just can you just linger with that spectrum, either the two ends or the whole spectrum, and just compare. Compare the senses of humanity, the ideas, but also the very sense of one's humanity. So this is this is what I'm talking about. It's not abstract. We're really talking about something that's not just in the realm of ideas or philosophy or history. It's really, it's got to do with that and that degree of import and impact to the human being, to you, to me. And I wonder as we go through the talk tonight if you can hold that remembered sense or those remembered senses the remembered sense of the normal human sense of your humanity or the contemporarily normal sense of that and um, also alternating with your remembered sense of your humanity when you were profoundly touched by an imaginal practice or soul making sense or sensing the soul just lightly in the back of your mind, in the back of the chitta, as a kind of reference or references throughout this talk, throughout the listening, just to really make sure, as I said, that it's anchored in uh, in a sense of the import and realization, a palpable realization of the import of what we're talking about, 
Uh, we're not talking abstractly here. So just as much as possible, very lightly in the background, I wonder if that might help digest and assimilate and um, empower, really, the listening. Okay. So this is the wish list item I want to look at today. The sense and the idea of what it is to be human and what a human being can be. And last time we talked about <coughs> dimensionality. And uh, we, we <coughs> gave out these four ways that uh, sort of dimensionalizing or, of ethics or, or a, uh, a providing of something or other in another dimension to secure, to found, to root, to ground um, the ethical thinking and the ethical justifications in uh, the f- four area, four ways, principal ways in which that was sort of given in history, and we looked at how soul making dharma um, kind of could modify them, or what it, what it had, would have to say about them, etc. And so one of them was uh, this was actually a non dimensionalizing, the utilitarian, or the, or co- commonly for some people a, a kind of Buddhist notion, just decreasing suffering. That's the most important thing. That's the primary. Um, issue and the primary purpose so is decreasing suffering or increasing pleasure or happiness um, and without really uh, spending any time differentiating between the different kinds of suffering okay, so that was one of them and when we talk about differentiating between different kinds of suffering, I'm not talking about for instance um, <clears throat> Your your child is um, uh, gets upset in the supermarket when they want they see some candy sweets that they want uh, and you say no and they start crying and they're suffering and in your mind it's like well they're suffering now but I'm saving their teeth later and their metabolism and possibly their brain from uh, deteriorating into ADHD etc. So we're not talking about that kind of comparison of suffering. We're not talking about, as I think was Ajahn Chah said, we're not talking about the suffering now, uh, comparing a suffering now that just ripens in more suffering compared to a suffering now that uh, brings about or, or enables less suffering in the future. Yeah, We're not talking about that kind of comparison. We're talking about more things like, as I said, um, give examples the other day um, I've given examples in the past of kind of like uh, you know why chemo was so difficult to me going into a certain chemo ward in a certain hospital felt very very difficult Um, and I pinpointed it you know it was a soul suffering more than a body suffering body sufferings there were plenty of body sufferings wrapped up with chemo but something 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 caused a suffering in my soul that was really, really difficult to deal with, the hardest thing to deal with for me. Um, So, and then I was trying to uh, explain, we had set up this ritual with Catherine when I was going back to 
uh, chemo and just trying to find the right soul orientation to it and um, had this little crucible and was cutting fingernails and bits of hair and pricking myself so there were bits of blood etc bodily elements in there giving them up and the question of whether giving is a part of uh, soulful ritual a necessary part of soulful ritual but there was something which I actually can't remember I was thinking what about my eyes and my ears and uh, and the mind and what that has to encounter in there that that feels like a wounding to the soul so there was something in the ritual which I just can't remember now that captured the soul suffering and the suffering for for the mind, for tomorrow's mind that would go into the chemo tomorrow. For giving up of this giving of elements of my body today. Uh, there was something for the mind I can't remember. But anyway, what, what, what we're really talking about is different kinds of suffering. Like how, how, how we, we, there's a way of approaching ethics that just ignores any difference between different kinds of suffering. Soul suffering, for example, versus bodily suffering. Sufferings of meaninglessness versus physical pain, etc. We talked about that. What I want to say now is that refusing to make a differentiation between different kinds of suffering, refusing any hierarchy of sufferings, that they're actually sufferings of a different level in the being, and that refusal in utilitarian ethics or ethics in some kind of, for some people, their, their Buddhist-based ethics, just about reducing suffering. In utilitarian ethics, just about increasing pleasure and happiness and reducing unpleasant, reducing suffering, reducing pain. What I want to say is that refusal of, of, of differentiating and hierarchizing suffering is that corresponds with a flattening of the human being. A refusal to acknowledge and to conceive and to sense that a human being has also dimensions. And these different kinds of suffering are, if you like, wounds at different levels of or different dimensions of the human being. If we talk about that other um, potential dimensionalizing, which is an attempt to dimensionalize in what's called voluntarism, just that God said so, usually um, that's conceived with uh, uh, the human being is, is quite flatly conceived. And it goes very much with a post-Reformation theology without intermediaries, and the human is just flatly conceived. Um, the dimensionality comes in the radical duality and in the huge distance between the human being and God. But the human being themselves, or humanity themselves, is actually quite flatly conceived, usually, in, in that in voluntarism. Philosophy, basis for ethics. If we take um, the uh, attempt to provide dimension for ethics in the cosmic order, then 
the, the vertical cosmic order, the hierarchical cosmic order, usually always goes with a sense of um, the, the dimensionality of a human being. That human being in themselves, uh, or is themselves, a kind of um, a, a being that, that, that is characterized by having different dimensions different levels of our being, different levels of our soul. Um, Whereas the horizontal cosmic order, which um, came to prevail and predominate historically much more over a a notion of a vertical cosmic order, that horizontal cosmic order, again, unsurprisingly, um, brought with it Concomitant with that was a, a notion of the human being, a flat notion of a human being, much more uh, in common with our, uh, well, with a lot of aspects of our contemporary notion of human being. Not completely, because uh, there are other complications historically. For instance, our interiority, our uh, these are things that came later and came with. Well, they also have a long history. But generally speaking, we can say there's a flattening um, in the sense that I want to talk about of the human being. And if we try and offer rationality as a possible um, dimension, other dimension in which to ground and to which to have recourse for our ethics and our ethical thinking then it depends on the metaphysics that goes with the whole idea of rationality. So for Kant, for Hegel, certainly for Plato, um, rationality implied um, the... uh, implied a dimensionality of the human. For for Plato and Hegel, it certainly implied a kind of dimensionality of the cosmos, kind of, in different, very different ways between Plato and Hegel. Um, but they're, they're implied in that idea of rationality. Um, again, it corresponds, there's a correspondence of the human being to the cosmic order, and to open to the cosmic order is, and then to uh, set one's life up erotically, really, in in correspondence with that order, that's rational. That's rational human behavior and rational human thinking in the largest sense of the word. For for Plato, um, but and for Kant, uh, the rationality had a kind of numinosity to it because it was part of uh, our essential nature, part of what God had given us, part of what it means to be made in the image of God, etc. But with our current dominant use of what we mean by rationality, just what's uh, called procedural procedural rationality, again, at first it might have been, oh, this is God-given, this capacity is God-given. But now, uh, over time and through history and with increasing secularization, I'm not sure how different people view rationality and how capable it is of... Uh, providing that other dimension that ethics needs. And it it almost never really does. No one would ever really claim that, for example. Say, um, 
this is where a human being's dignity lies in their rationality, because then someone who's brain damaged or uh, got some impaired uh, mental functioning in terms of their logical, rational capabilities, if, if a person was strict with the view that rationality provided that dimension, then we would treat them uh, with much less respect, etc., which is generally not what we do in uh, Western courts in terms of human rights and that kind of thing. But the question here, again, that what I want to focus on today is what what do all these different ideas and attempts and um, attempts at dimensionality, what do they, um, how do they influence our sense of, of what what a human being is, what a human being can be? Let me look too briefly at the uh, history of the Protestant Reformation and their uh, rejection of any intermediaries between humanity and God, and that meant a rejection of angels as well, of course, angels as intermediaries, which means um, n- n- no, in our language, no images, no daemons to refract the divine attributes. If you think of a kind of pure, bright, intense, white light, and it reaches a prism, uh, and then it refracts into different, if into different colours, all coming out at different angles, different wavelengths, different frequencies coming out at different angles. Maybe that's one way of understanding. Ah, this is uh, this pure white, undifferentiated light of God. It has all these different attributes, all these different colours and wavelengths in it, but the prism. Uh, refracts them differently. The angelic world refracts them differently so they become, we can separate them out so we can digest them more, see their beauty more. The white light is definitely beautiful, but then this rainbow of other colors, we see more the beauty of the divine, the Buddha nature, and we see it uh, in a bigger way. We spread it out through the prism. Perhaps that's a way of thinking of what the world of the angels does and what images do. But in the Protestant Reformation, there was refusal of intermediaries, therefore refusal of angels, therefore refusal of a dimension that refracted the divine attributes, and a refusal then of um, seeing ourselves also as in turn reflecting and refracting those divine attributes through a sort of um, uh, ladder from the divine from the Buddha nature into the world of devas and angels and into uh, into human being. So this rejection, you know, had a lot of influence in history regarding what a human is, a lot of, a lot of impact on the notion, the sense of what a human be- being is and on their relationship to God and on their relationship to the cosmic order or the cosmos. So what is a human being? You know, if we talk again, tying it in with something like species extinction, and the crime of species extinction, so yes, of course, that's a crime against the individual animals. Uncountable numbers 
uncountable suffering of individual animals. And yes, of course, it's a crime against the species, if we can say, can, can, there, be, uh, can there be a crime against a species? We talked about poly, poly uh, Higgins, etc., and the crime of ecocide, hopefully making it into international law. So yes, yes. And then the, uh, is species extinction a crime against animals? Yes. Is it, is it a crime against a species? Yes. Is it a crime against the cosmic order? Even the planetary order, the the, the order of the, the, of earth, of life on Earth, yes. But is it not? I feel it is also, or can it be regarded as a crime against humanity too? Species extinction is a crime against humanity too. Not just because we are probably biologically dependent on many of these species and the way they work in the ecosystem. What I want to focus on more now, right now, is because of our potential soul connection with other species and with ecosystems. Ecosystem is such a cold, scientific-sounding word. Let's say with forests, for example, with coral reefs, with oceans. One way of understanding what a human being is is that they're profoundly connected. This, our soul, as a human being, is profoundly connected with other species, other ecosystems. They are theophanies that we are called to uh, witness, to open to, to sense with soul, to know their beauty, to know their depth, to know their divinity. And that that potential soul connection, because of course it's it's often really not realized, that potential. We don't feel these things as a crime against humanity, or not enough people do, not enough human beings do. But maybe that, that very, uh, that potential soul connection is, is, uh, that capability to sense with soul and feel species and ecosystems that way is, you know, whatever you want to call it, deep or high part of our humanity. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an aspect of our soul, a dimension of our soul. Or even like light pollution, you know, the fact that it's so difficult to find a place in in the uh, northern hemisphere, in the western world, well, in the western world, let's say, and, um, where, where one can really see the stars well. And lie down on the earth on a, at night and open up to the, the magnificence of the heavens, the mystery, the, the sheer scale of it, the radiance, the depth of it. Is the fact that there are less and less uh, shrinking amount of places where one can actually see that many stars? Is that also a, a crime against humanity? Or noise pollution, whereas there's so few places outside where, um, or shrinking amount of places where. Uh, 
the dominant sound is not mostly the sound of some kind or other of internal combustion engine basically burning fossil fuels loudly as opposed to the sound of birdsong or wind and trees or whatever it is. Are these crimes against our humanity as well? What does it mean to be a human being? What is a human being? What can it mean to be a human being? What should it mean to be a human being? To me these are really, really important questions. So we've talked about the Protestant Reformation. I certainly don't want to um, kind of vilify the Protestant Reformation because a lot of really good stuff uh, came out of it, as much as a, a lot of difficulty well, in terms of wars and things, but um, also in terms of say, trying to trace historical threads that had their origins um, there. Uh, so Martin Luther, instigating the Protestant Reformation, in a way had a very, let's say, pessimistic and poor view of the human being. Uh, so poor um, uh, that the human being was totally reliant on divine grace, in Luther's view, in the Protestant view. Totally, uh, there was very little a human being could do to uh, work towards or ensure their own salvation. There's a total um, uh, re- reliance on on the sort of free will of God to save us. And with that, and we touched on this the other day, the, the sort of flip side of that, the corollary, what that really means is that there's very little place for uh, the cultivation of ethical virtue. That loses its place as anything that's going to move you closer to God or open up the sense of the divine for you. So any kind of extra um, striving on behalf of monks or nuns or whatever it is, it's all pointless. And ethical virtue itself, the whole notion of the virtues, kind of gets undermined. And the whole notion of cultivating and aspiring to the virtues gets undermined in terms of salvation, as does any notion of ritual or sacrament or any other uh, extraordinary activity. There's very little place, and again, for the love of the heroes, for that sort of extra-reaching uh, uh, that souls are capable of. Super-irrigation is going beyond. So, um, at the time of the Renaissance, you know, you had people like uh, Nicholas Cusser and Marsilio Fuccino and uh, Giovanni Piccolomandla, and... Um, they held a kind of, or they were promoting a kind of more uh, exalted view of the human being and wrote a very beautiful text about that. And Luther kind of uh, was was really moving in the opposite direction. And uh, he emphasized the fall, meaning the fall, Adam and Eve eating the apple, getting expelled from the garden, the fall. And that was central to his theology, of course, uh, 
that fall and expulsion from Eden, you know, that was always there in Christianity and in Judaism. Um, even when, even when um, you know, people held, espoused a more uh, exalted and exalting view of the human being, there was still always some uh, mention of the fall. Um, but uh, Martin Luther uh, insisted that that was uh, really placed that very centrally, the fall, and that um, human being. Uh, human nature was completely kind of corrupted by original sin. It was completely corrupted. And why? Again, the flip side of that is then total, the necessity of total dependence on redemption through God, through Christ. Salvation only comes through uh, God. There's nothing in us that we can rely on, develop, work on, etc. So, uh, paraphrasing historian called Jill Crane says, man, the humanity was therefore unable to make any contribution to one's own salvation. Uh, it's all up to God. So, and then she comes in, in Protestant thought, the spiritual impotence and depravity of post-lapsarian man, that means post-fall, post-expulsion from, from the Garden of Eden. And, and that just means this is how we are. The fall, the, the fall, the expulsion from the Garden of Eden is just something that's happened. You're born into that. You're born into original sin. Spiritual impotence and depravity of post-lapsarian man became, an, a, a, became a central doctrine. And then Calvin, who was a, a, a very central in, in this uh, uh, movement of Protestant, Protestantism, man's high opinion of himself, according to Calvin, had to be deflated. And he had to be convinced of his own corruption and debility. For only then would man realize he was lost and helpless without divine grace. And we mentioned the other day um, Michel de Montaigne, and uh, he too, though he was a Catholic and not a Protestant, um, similarly he was also kind of set about to uh, take humanity uh, down a rung, a good few rungs, in in one's uh, sort of self-assessment. Uh, uh, so Jill Cray writes... Uh, Montaigne was concerned to destroy man's presumption and and lower his excessive estimate of his own worth. So one of the upshots of that for ethics was 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 very very significant because Protestantism, the Reformation, um, has much uh, brought much less place and much less regard for ethics and virtue in their cultivation because all dependent on God. Um, a little later as, uh, uh, to read you something um, uh, Melanchthon a, a reformist thinker uh, again stressing stressing the fall stressing the expulsion from, from the Garden of Eden but he did something very interesting because he um, uh, 
almost separated out the realm of ethics. In fact, he did separate out the realm of ethics from the realm of uh, religion, theology. This, this came as part of a movement of Protestant theology. It was a separating out. First, there's, this, there's no place for ethics. And then ethics comes back in, but it's separated from any connection with, uh, real connection with divinity or uh, divine aspiration or something like that. And this came from Melanchthon. So ethics, I'm quoting again from Jill Cray, ethics has had nothing to do with the will of God or the remission of sins. It was exclusively concerned with rules governing external action and civil society. Conversely, theology had nothing to do with these ethical rules. You can see then this, this, this recourse to trying to dimensionalize ethics by placing it in relation to God in some way or another, in relationship to divinity in some way or another, gets uh, totally shattered here as they get pulled apart. Ethics has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with religious aspiration, nothing to do with salvation even. Jill Craig again, by delineating these two different spheres of influence, Melanchthon was, in effect, applying Luther's doctrine of the two kingdoms to ethics. So Luther had this idea, there's a, a kingdom of Christ, and there's a secular kingdom. And they coexist, they're not in different places or different times so much as they, they coexist. Yes, we live in civil society, uh, but that's not the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ can be um, something that is... Um, kind of constituted by some members of civic society, civil society, but it's um, it's among them and in their relationship to each other and to God. This is separating out the two kingdoms in Luther's thinking. So Luther distinguished between the sacred kingdom in which true Christians are ruled by Christ through the Holy Spirit and the secular kingdom, in which non-Christians are ruled by political authorities through laws and coercion. Since the secular kingdom is also established by God and is necessary in order to preserve society, Christians must obey its authority, provided it does not impinge on their higher loyalty to God by interfering in matters of faith. There's a separation, saying, yes, yes, you have to follow the laws, and even the coercion of your uh, the ruler of your society, but but that's only to preserve society because God said that's good too. It's got nothing to do that whole realm of ethics. The whole realm of ethics has nothing to do with your relationship with God. Nothing to do with theology. So. Um, one of the things that Luther had really, really objected to, um, as much as he kind of um, objected against um, the Catholic Church, he also really objected to um, scholastic theology and the influence of Aristotle, uh, and particularly Aristotle's ethics. Again, for uh, he regarded it as the worst enemy of grace. So you get this polarizing. It's like either you're, um, if if you want to totally 
prioritize grace, divine grace, and, and dependence on divine grace, then you, then you totally dismiss um, any uh, place for ethics. And if you give a central place for ethics and ethical aspiration and the virtues and perhaps that has even a road to, to growing into God, to theosis, to divinification, divinization, to, to, to all that, then you're uh, shrinking the um, power of God and the place for God's grace. So, uh, Luther was very anti-Aristotle and Aristotle's influence in, in, in the Middle Ages and scholastic theology, Thomas Aquinas and all that. Um, because of this, because of how he saw it uh, compromising and limiting the, uh, our dependence on divine grace. Whereas Melanchthon came in and completely separated ethics and theology and then was able to sort of reclaim uh, a place for even the ancient pagan philosophers uh, like Aristotle, etc. Um, uh, separate from one's relationship with God. So that ethics and that, that kind of ethical philosophy governed the external actions of those who had not yet been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, as Jill Cray says, and ha- they helped simply helped to preserve the, the peace and order of civil society. So this, I think, is extremely significant: the divorce of ethical from religious questions. Which again means a no dimensionality rooting the ethical sense. Only rationality stepped in there, in the uh, procedural sense, in the flat sense. And in, in a way, the whole Western Enlightenment and secularism came partly had its had its had its roots in in the very Protestant Reformation. It didn't start as secular at all. It started as an attempt to uh, at at kind of um, increasing religiosity. But there were ideas there that when, as seed ideas, when they grew and their consequences were sort of extrapolated over time, had enormous consequences, uh, both for religion in general and the religious sensibility and religious ideas, um, uh, but also on, on society and on ethics. Um, Interestingly, Melanchthon uh, hated Plato because more with Plato is um, is the teaching that um, one can pure. As I said, there's this kind of ladder, rational order to the universe, and and one's sense of the virtues and one's sense of the values um, corresponds to that ladder, a bit like Augustine. And one can climb up this ladder by purifying the virtues and moving uh, closer to God, closer to a vision of God. Melanchthon thought that was literally the invention of the devil. Uh, as, as if you could live by that kind of rationality alone, without um, Christianity and without divine grace, etc., But, as I said, Melanchthon's uh, kind of uh, sp- t- sharp 
delineation, splitting uh, between ethics and theology, they weren't just separated apart, um, allowed um, even Aristotelian moral philosophy to become um, uh, reintegrated into uh, the sort of standard Protestant education. Enormous, enormous um, consequences of all this played out, you know, developed uh, gradually over over quite a while. So this this uh, emphasis by in the Protestant Reformation, this emphasis on the fall, on the expulsion from Eden, on original sin, and the. Rejection of mediation by priests, by any elite, rejection of the sacraments and the sacred, and all of that meaning that salvation is, is, as I said, completely and only dependent on divine grace. All this, in terms of what it means for humanity, wrapped up in that is a total and, and radical duality of God and human, between God and human, which is completely and utterly different, and that's that. There's no, no ladder in between. There's no dimensions of our being. There's no uh, possible way of moving closer. There's no intermediaries, as I said, that refract and reflect and function as theophanies in the world. It's all dependent on divine grace. So again, if we, if we bring in soul-making dharma here, so we have grace as an element of the imaginal, but in soul-making dharma, in contrast to this uh, Protestant teaching, everything is dependent on divine grace. That's all there is. You can't do anything. In soul-making dharma, interestingly, if you reflect on this, we have this grace as an element of, of the imaginal, this sense of inexplicable gift. I've given this image or given this sense of things, and it was, I couldn't really engineer it. I'm not the master of it. Mm. Uh, it's inexplicable gift from the divine. That element is balanced by other elements. Like we need to uh, have an energy body awareness, develop an energy body awareness. This is something we can do. We need to, uh, just the very idea that an image is a way of looking implies that, oh, there are ways of looking. We can play with our ways of looking. It's dependent on us. So those two elements, or nodes of the lattice, and also the, the autonomy, not just of the image, but of the self, that we have to assent, that we participate. The fact, the node of create, discover, the emphasis on creation, and not just discovery. All of these balance the uh, node of the element, uh, the, the element of grace. Do you understand? In, instead of the Protestant one, it's all grace. You get this much more... Um, balanced uh, sort of fluid network. And if we entertain the idea of soul-making gives us the sense that our eros, our eros, my eros, right now, is divine. Maybe my, my psyche, the image, my capacity to have images, my soul, the logos, the thoughts I have, the insights, the conceptions either entertaining that idea or actually that those uh, senses and ideas arising naturally through the soul-making practice. It is divine, it's from the divine. 
and again, either entertaining the idea or it arising naturally from soul-making practice that our egoic and neurotic shapes are kind of impoverished echoes or impoverished reflections of divinity, of angel, of image. These ideas and these senses very much uh, you know, provide a counterweight to a, a reliance on grace, on the guru, on wh- whatever it is, on the divine, completely. You know, it's not totally up to me either. It's not just a matter of me becoming a master of soul-making technique, imaginal technique, uh, practice technique. But of course, um, you know, we have to point out those ideas and those perspectives uh, that my eros is divine, comes from the divine, that my, you know, egoic neurotic shapes are really just slightly distorted, impoverished reflections of the divine, of the angel, of the daemon, the image. Of course, you know, it's really important to point out and to be aware that those ideas and perspectives could be corrupted. They can be corrupted, they can be faked, we can be mistaken about that. You know, just like there were corrupt priests in the Catholic Church at the time of the Protestant Reformation, and the Protestant Reformation was was pointing fingers and objecting to that. But actually, as I think I said the other day, that wasn't the main point of the Protestant Reformation. It wasn't an attempt to um, weed out corrupt priests. Oh, and let's have a whole overhaul while, while we're doing that. Actually, the fundamental idea was theological. The fundamental point was a theological revolution, reformation. And that was this emphasis on the total power of God, on not imprisoning God's total freedom and power. So just so in soul-making, Dharma, the, the fundamental point is on the possibility Soul-making now, the fundamental point is on the possibility, you know, through disciplined practice and, and sensitivity, the possibility to create and discover as sacred and as divine, as, as rooted in divine and as divinizable. In other words, uh, uh, with, a, with a conception of ontic roots and uh, with lived possibilities of human beings but to create and discover as sacred and divine anything. The fundamental point of soul-making is the possibility through disciplined practice and, and the, the kind of sensitivity that goes with disciplined practice to create, discover anything as sacred and divine, especially including human being. We're emphasizing today. Because the sense of human being, the sense of human has, you know, through modernity... And even through humanism and secular humanism, the sense of human, humanity, has become flattened. First it was divorced from a radically different God, like we said in in the Protestant Reformation. And then, with the gradual rise of atheistic secularism, you know, through different stages, uh, many stages, including deism, as some of you probably know, it was simply flattened not even just divorced from God, because God became non-existent, so divorce from God made no sense. It was simply a flat view of a human being. All this has enormous 
enormous effects on how we feel, sense and think of ourselves and our humanity. And we've used several times over the past four or five years, we've used this idea of telos. And to think theologically or to conceive theologically and the telos of the human being. For instance, the angel out ahead calling me. And so in Plato, you know, there's a kind of idea of telos, uh, of, of the human um, moving towards, uh, rising towards, if you like, the, the, the world of what's called the intelligences, the world of ideas, the realm of ideas, which talked about in the Sealer and Soul talks, the realm of forms. In some versions of Platonism, Neoplatonism, um, you know, there's a, an idea of the human, of humanity, but in others, there's also included the idea your individual form, the ideal version of you. And we talked about that on Sealer and Soul. And there's this, uh, you know, that's there in the whole uh, metaphysic and cosmology of Platonism. And again, to be rational meant to, to see that, to acknowledge it, to feel it, and to be drawn naturally through seeing it and through love of it and through eros for it to towards moving towards that. So there's a certain telos, there's a certain natural uh, movement of humanity. This is our destiny, if you like. It's another word for telos. And Aristotle came along after Plato had a different idea of telos. Um, more, let's see, eventually more biological, if you like, but um, but really in, there's an Aristotelian telos as well, so sort of natural, the idea of a natural inclination or, or a goal of our nature. We naturally move towards whatever. So those whole ideas that we naturally move towards the angel, we naturally move towards God, that we're built for this, that this is the natural uh, sort of inclination, the natural way we will grow. If we're not, if we don't distort that, those ideas, again, were uh, uh, decimated, severed, beginning really, I think, with with uh, William Ockham and others. Often, it's presented this thing as a as a kind of uh, argument between um, what's called nominalists and realists, as if it's a philosophical argument between. Some of you will know this between like the argument about universals and particulars. Are universals real? Table, as opposed to this table. This table is clearly a real thing. Table, as a universal, is it doesn't is it a real thing or is it not a real thing? It's presented these days as 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 if all all the fuss was about that. Some kind of pretty sort of ab- abstract-sounding philosophical argument. Actually, it was fundamentally a theological argument again. And again, it had to do with n- refusing to limit God's power. God's fiat. Fiat means let it be, let there be light, in Latin. So God's um, ability to just, through God's will, to just decide what happens whenever, wherever, however. So the theological idea was nothing should limit that um, infinite and endless possibility and power of God's fiat, God's, um, God's, uh, the inaction of God's will. So if there's a natural telos, 
for the human being, how or how human being naturally grow if we uh, don't if things don't block it, etc. That's actually a limit to God's fiat, because then their growth, their salvation, their uh, liberation, their nirvana, whatever you want to call it, their realization, their awakening, is um, is kind of something uh, that's you know, not entirely dependent on God, if there's a human telos. Do you hear how significant this is? It came from a theological argument about not wanting to limit um, God's, God's fear, God's power. And then eventually, again, over over time, this, this that very idea became the seed for this kind of mechanistic universe. Because it was only a kind of flat, mechanistic universe uh, that was... Um, compatible, really fully compatible, with this sort of endless and infinite freedom of, uh, of of God's fiat, of God's power. It's it's complex. I'm oversimplifying because um, it's also the fact that with the idea of the mechanistic universe came also um, uh, the encouragement for humans uh, to exercise their power, and technology, and we talked about. Um, Locke and the instrumental stance and human control, human fear. So it's complex. But still, there was something in the seed idea that had all kinds of implications um, relative to the, uh, or, or implications that had consequences about, on, about and on our sense of our humanity, therefore our sense of ourselves, our sense of our souls. No more uh, possible the telos of the soul, the calling of the soul. This idea of an angel out ahead completely ruled out. There's a radical duality between God and the human soul. Can't have these, uh, in, that, in that view, you know, this idea we have, the angel is me and it's not me. Uh, ruled out. Um, the, or that there's a spark of divinity in me and um, or there's a natural inclining, natural inclination, growth, natural reach to the divine. All these would be um, kind of uh, impossible views. Yeah. So again, in soul-making dharma, um, what we've done, or there's an attempt to do, is, is to rehabilitate, to redeem notions like telos, and also ethics, obviously, um, but with again with a different ontology and epistemology. You know that that we need a different ontology and epistemology in order to make sense of these ideas. We can't just go back to uh, the Middle Ages or the ancient, you know, ancient Greece or wherever. So with a different ontology and epistemology, and with practice, and with the subtleties and sophistications of practice and what that opens up and the senses that that opens up in the being. Practice, the eros, um, with practice, with care and practice, the eros opens up the psyche and the logos, the ideation as well. The idea of things and the idea of human being.
yeah, if we just linger, you know, so there was this mm, pessimism is the right word um, regarding morality and and human nature that came uh, with uh, or the group with the uh, with the Protestant Reformation. Um, and then historically, jumping forward some hundreds of years, there was um, even more this pessimism with. Uh, regarding morality and human nature um, that came with Freud. We touched on that the other day. Freud's whole, you know, the the influence of Freud's ideas in Western culture were quite pervasive. And then getting into the 20th century in World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, uh, Stalin, you know, just... um, There has been a kind of trend of... um, Pessimism uh, regarding morality and human nature. That's one of the trends. There's also been a kind of um, pessimism, if we want to use that word, um, regarding the humans, human beings' capacity for um, on, ontology and epistemology and what we can hope for there. Which in a way, starting with Kant, I mean, it goes way, be- way, way before Kant, really, but he really... Um, in, in many ways, uh, what he did philosophically really uh, started to undermine, in a, in a much more, in a, in a way that became much more popular, undermine the belief that we could really know things as they are or know reality, and that to have a kind of uh, pure knowledge of things. And since Kant, it's even grown even more with. Um, well, with postmodernity and other thinkers and lots of things. So again, soul making dharma comes in is is born in that in that kind of crucible, in that kind of uh, soup, in that kind of um, opening of the historical contingency. And. Uh, You know what? Part of what soul making dharma says is, you know, not that it's possible to prove absolute truths about ethics, or about ontology, or about epistemology, about human nature. But what what is possible through soul making dharma is that dharma is that we can, in practice, uh, and and in concept conceptually, um, relate to these areas: ethics, ontology, epistemology so that they are fruitful, so that they are meaning-making, and so that they uh, uh, make possible for us uh, a real sense of uh, a genuine ethical nobility and beauty, without one fixed view or truth um, either. This is the way things are. neither totally objective nor subjective, again, but participatory. So that it becomes possible through soul-making dharma, soul-making practice, to have this sense of dimensionality, to have a sense of dimensionality that's potent and trustworthy and a sense of nobility. 
So it's interesting, I think I just said it very briefly in the jhana retreat, you know, um, you think probably as practitioners of Buddha Dharma, it's the history of Buddha Dharma that will, uh, that's most relevant to us. But just as much, maybe even more so, the history of Western theology has such an impact on how we sense our existence, how we sense the cosmos, how we sense our humanity. And, you know, with all uh, kind of good intentions, um, the kind of secularization of ethics um, brought about um, uh, you know, a view, an idea that there are no dimensional or transcendent principles or values or virtues. And what's more, there's no possibility of knowing any such dimensions or values. This becomes almost axiomatic. And then the question becomes, how do we organize society so that each person can pursue what she wants? He, she, they wants. And protect their right to do that, to pursue what they want. And their right to decide what it is that they want. How can we organize society in that way without causing civil war or breakdown of social structure. So starting with good intentions, the secularization of ethics um, and the removal of dimensionality, removal of the possibility of knowing any uh, such dimensionality or even the refusal to believe that they exist. And then ethics gets um, transposed to this, okay, how do we organize society so that we all don't just claw each other to death and there's just chaos? And eventually that goes so far as to become kind of Game theory, uh, game theory theories of um, of society or ethics. It's not even ethics anymore. You know, like the prisoner's dilemma. If I, I want to get what I want, so should I trust other people or not? Because I know that they want to get what they want, and that might probably conflicts with what I want, or it might conflict with what I want. Should I believe them? Should I not believe them? Should I trust them? Should I not? Should I team up with them or not? And people think about this now. Is, this is how uh, this is how to think about society. This is how to think about our social predicament. Or you get explanations of altruism, like Richard Dawkins' selfish gene, was so popular in the uh, 1980s. Altruism, in that view, um, is really, or what looks like altruism, is actually an illusion. It's just the biological or evolutionary strategies for survival of the gene, not even the human being. So uh, the nobility of human altruism, it's a, it doesn't really exist. What's really going on is this gene is trying to ensure its own survival. It's the selfishness of the gene. And there's a whole sort of evolution of, of thinking that ends up with ideas like that and game theory notions of ethics, of society, of economy. You know, going back, Descartes, Locke, Kant, for them, rationality and the, ra- the, the, the capacity for rationality of a human being was part of what uh, conferred and secured dignity for a human being. Their very rational capabilities, their capacity for rationality. Excuse me. 
and in, and the Western Enlightenment um, even more kind of implied let's let's you know not put our belief in superstitions about gods and all this let's um, realize our own dignity as human being again as time went by uh, the, the, the notion of the human being as having a kind of intrinsic dignity or even of most human beings acting uh, in a dignified way most of the time seemed to get very thin especially as we moved into the 20th century Perhaps the idea of a sort of innate human dignity was uh, seen to fail or seen to be an illusion. Can we have, can we provide, can we find, can we create, discover another basis uh, for rescuing our sense of human being, of human worth, of human nobility, of human possibility? of human essence and depth and and then the notion of our place in the cosmos. And again, that's part very much of what soul-making dharma and practice does, is one possibility, one way of uh, opening up, deepening, rescuing the sense of human being. One possibility. But it's tricky, you know, because clearly we just need to look in the newspaper or turn the news on, and it's hard, you know. Dignity, human being, nobility, possibility, depravity. So it's tricky, like that whole question of shame uh, that we touched on the other day. If you revisit it a little bit now. So we talked about naming and shaming and how that's kind of, um, well, in, in spiritual circles, certainly often, some spiritual circles, or at least the ones I move in, it, it, might, it might be very looked down on. But, um, you know, when we read what the Buddha has to say about Hiri and Otapa, um, it's clear uh, that they have a social dimension. And his emphasis on them very much kind of draws on their their uh, our 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 place in society and our connection with others in the community. And here in Ottawa, very much to do with that. And it might be just reflecting on this a little bit more that it might be um, that naming and shaming may be a part of what keeps a society or a community or a culture healthy and ethically healthy. When there's naming and shaming, it's like we are clear that this is wrong and that you have done wrong. And it's clear, and we're making it clear for everyone to see. It's part of making the ethics clear. So it has a, a function, and it's also a kind of a sign that the ethics is clear. Perhaps. And conversely, kind of our, our shying away from naming and shaming may be due in part in part, to our um, postmodern barring um, of a unanimous ethical view. Partly a sign of our ethical confusion and lack of basis. 
So, I don't know, maybe in terms of society and community, naming and shaming have their place, or can have a place, they can have a place. But again, you just have to hear or read or uh, sometimes witness, you know, how that can move over into something that's completely horrific. Completely horrific. And naming and shaming that has become uh, completely abusive and run away with itself. It's tricky. Um, but, you know, in a way it was uh, implied in our, in our wish list for ethics, there needs to be a place for shame and guilt. As the Buddha said, uh, you know, for Hiri and Otapa, guardians of the world, he called them. So we, we want, we need a place for shame and guilt, yet, to me, it, it needs to not be everything. It's not everything about ethics. So it was a little, uh, slightly taken aback to read the Buddha said, all virtuous deeds spring from Hiri and Otapa, spring from shame and moral dread. All virtuous deeds spring from shame and moral dread. All virtuous deeds, leaving no place for eros, for our eros, for virtues and values, or indirectly through an imaginal figure. So I would say we need place too for love and eros, as I've said before, with respect to virtues and values and ethics. There needs to be a place for shame and guilt, but it's not everything. It doesn't take up the whole space. Can we integrate shame and guilt into our soul-making dharma conceptual framework into our view as soul questions, as, as soul issues. See them, feel them, work with them as soul questions and soul issues. Can the whole of ethics be approached with soul first? With an idea and a conception of soul first? the scope of that. So, you know, is that what I called the other day, I think I called it superficial shame. I mean, it may not feel or seem superficial at all. It may feel like it goes to the core of one's being. So deep, the shame. But from our language, is that superficial shame? Because it doesn't seem, it seems deep, but actually doesn't involve soul. Is that superficial shame an impoverished reflection of a soul shame? It's, it's an important question, because it might be, but I don't know, but probably not always. It's still important to ask. And I think I use the phrase healthy shame, again drawing on Hartman, etc. But I didn't mean to make a distinction between healthy shame and soul shame. I'd say healthy shame is soul shame. If we really, if we really open up what we mean by soul making dharma to to include, to incorporate ethics, and if we really approach ethics in a in a way that uh, soul making dharma is, is really integrated into that approach, let me say healthy shame means soul shame. In other words, it has a sense of the dimensionality and divinity and of our duty to images, to our images. Healthy shame is soul shame. Any time we feel shame uh, that is 
healthy. What we mean by healthy, it's a soul shame because it's got this dimensionality, divinity and sense of duty in it, duty to images. And healthy guilt is soul guilt because, again, it's got this sense of dimensionality, divinity, of eros, of duty to values and virtues as, as ideational images. So sure, we can approach all this uh, area of ethics and shame and guilt without uh, soul-making conception, soul-making practice. But what if we actually bring it right in, really incorporate it, really embrace that whole domain with uh, the soul-making dharma uh, conception? And healthy shame is soul-shame. It will have that that sense and that feel to it. There's dimensionality and divinity here and duty that I've let down. And healthy guilt is soul guilt. Dimensionality, duty, divinity, eros, to these ideational images, to these ideas, values, virtues. And again, when I said the other day, you know, sometimes people who are a bit more... Uh, I don't know what to call it, you know, who do engage in psychological work and spiritual work and, you know, work on their psycho-spiritual process, etc., and a bit more conscious, what they call conscious living. And and there can be a sort of, you know, of course, kind of included in that very naturally is, uh, uh, you know, to some extent an orientation and a devotion to um, virtues and values. But it's it's limited without a person even kind of realizing it because because their whole conceptual framework doesn't involve a sense of dimensionality it doesn't invoke it doesn't it doesn't um, incorporate a sense of dim- dimensionality and or the eros is blocked and the eros is limited so yeah this sort of warm and kind and as I said not arrogant whatever else i said but it's somehow just, it's not really on fire. It's not really full. The soul is not really stretched that way. The eros is not really ignited. It's not really soulful. And because it's because the conceptual framework that's being entertained doesn't have a, an integrated and central place for dimensionality. And maybe uh, the eros is blocked or limited in some way. And this prevents um, the ethos and prevents the, the whole sense of ethics from its fullness. Prevents the ethics from its fullness. Now, I don't know how that sounds. Does it sound, I don't know, stern or strict or judgmental or forbidding? Or, you know, we have these kind of uh, puritanical associations with even just the, the, the word and the, and the area of ethics. So I don't know how that sounds. But what I really mean is that ethics and the ethos is prevented from its full beauty. From its full beauty, from its sense of divinity, from its unfathomability, from its uh, mystery. Because it's not seen as um, integrated with soul. It's not seen as part of soul. It's not ensouled. So this question, what is the image of ethics? What is the image of ethics that we are uh, operating with, that we are living our life with? What is the image of ethics? 
something kind of necessary. It's necessary to care about ethics. It's necessary to, you know, talk about them and have have a good solid basis. Something necessary, but kind of boring. Maybe stern. Maybe punitive. Something that has to limit. It limits us by its nature. That's what ethic does. Uh, it limits what we can do and say and all the rest of it. And and it's itself it's kind of limited in its scope. Or it's a kind of preliminary basis. Sila, okay, taking care of that, then samadhi and panya, for example. So is it that? What's the image of ethics? Or is it something soulful, something beautiful, something infinite in its reaches and its callings, something we love, something we have eros for, something soul-making. What does the word magnanimity mean? I'm not sure. It probably means different things, and it has mean different things at different times, and maybe means different things to different people. Magnanimity. Sometimes it just means generosity. I mean, it can mean other things as well. But the etymology, magna animus, a big soul. What supports a human being to grow into magnanimity? Big soul means more than a big heart. Big hearted. This person, that person, oh, they've got a big heart. What does it mean to have a big soul? What might it mean to have a big soul? I wonder whether to fully honour human life, uh, for it to have deep dignity, for our sense of our humanity as well to be deeply honoured. It must include a kind of love and eros for something that's more than my human life, more than certainly more than my survival. Something of a different order, again. Something I'm willing even to sacrifice my life for. Again, we have that etymology of the word sacrifice. To, excuse me, to make sacred. And to me, that if there's something that I'm willing to sacrifice my, uh, my pleasure, my well-being, my happiness even, my life for, my actual, the prolongation of my life. This is part of uh, the realization of that, the sense of that, the love and commitment for that, whatever that is, but it's another dimension other than just my life. That's part of what it means to fully honor human life, I would, I'm wondering. For life to have deep dignity. But you know, that love and that passion, again, uh, that love and that willing to sacrifice, is, it's like when we talked about passion. It depends on what the thing is. Just to be willing to sacrifice for some cause, well, it depends what the cause is. Just to be willing to sacrifice for some sense of this or that, it depends what the this or that are. And the sense of it is. But this is related to everything we're talking about, dimensionality and the other 
wish list elements and other list of needs about ethics and, and related to what a human being is, what a human being can be, what a human being should be. In ancient times, uh, they had uh, what's at some point came to be called the honor ethic. And so this, this in a way, only applied to a certain strata of society, warriors and maybe knights and rulers, whose life was kind of um, oriented to and centered on and governed by uh, this honor ethic about honor and glory. But, but the central element of that was a willingness to risk one's own life for the sake of. And the honor ethic, um, there was a hierarchy there that was regarded as um, someone who was living that way, who was bound by that kind of honor ethic. Their, um, their life was at a different level than others uh, who were concerned only with their life their ordinary life, and prolonging it. So I think Hannah Arendt, Arendt wrote about this and modified it and talked about uh, the citizen ethic in modern society and that as a kind of parallel of the honor ethic and that relative to sort of work and labor. And she was saying, and others have said, modern culture um, is really defined by what, what constitutes modern culture is this turning upside down this poo-pooing of the honor ethic and uh, uh, sort of um, evening out demolition of the hierarchy there. So again, this flattening of a hierarchical view and the affirmation of ordinary life, work, production, family, spouse and children. And higher aims and strivings are criticized. Yesterday, you know, pointed out the historical contingency of our taken-for-granted sense of ordinary life and its import. But before the 18th century, that wasn't really seen and felt and thought of in the ways that we typically do now most people kind of agree on. So, you know, it's interesting. Some of you, you've probably come across this sort of thing. I'm sure most people have, but if you, you know, looking for alternative cancer cures and that sort of thing, and there's different websites and people discuss things, and sometimes they say, you know, I've got cancer and how much I want to live, and very, very common to hear something like, I so want just... You know, I want to live, I want to be here, I want to survive, to hear my daughter's first words, my baby daughter's first words, or see her take her first steps. And I'm you know, scared that I won't be, or it grieves me that I won't be able to, that I might not be able to be there for that. Or her first day at school, or her graduation from college, or her marriage, or her children and my grandchildren, I won't, I won't see them. And very common to hear that sort of as a justification, as a reason for why I want to live longer, even though the so-called quality of life, which usually means the sort of relative ratio of pleasant to unpleasant, um, is poor. But that thing's important. That thing is more important to see the uh, 
to see ordinary life, to witness ordinary life in my family. That was given that much import as put forward as a reason to live, as something that made life worthwhile, that qualified as an orientation and a wish, that qualified as, as the worthy life, a kind of worthy life. This was not thought before sometime in the 18th century. And, and we have to understand, this isn't, it wasn't the case that everyone secretly felt that way and saw things that way. And it was a, you know, only until the oppression of the church was lifted that they, they could then just admit it. And all this time they were actually feeling that way and viewing that way and viewing their existence that way and viewing what was most important that way, but they just couldn't admit it out loud, so they hid it and kept it secret. That wasn't the case. They actually didn't think. People actually didn't think that way. It didn't qualify as something of that import, as something that would qualify as the good life, the beautiful life. This is something that makes life worthwhile. This qualifies as uh, me living a life that's worthwhile. So you didn't view life or existence and the sense of what was most important, what qualified as making life worthwhile that way. This is a historically contingent rising. It's hard for us, or for many of us, it would be hard to, to kind of even grasp, to even stand outside that view. It's so um, taken for granted. This, this uh, affirmation, elevation of ordinary life has become so pervasive, so entrenched. I'm pointing out it's uh, historical contingency, but but what does the fact of its historical contingency imply? What does it actually imply? What we take it to imply actually depends on our view of history, our view of the process of history. That's uh, another question I've gone into that in other talks in recent years, but still it's worth acknowledging this, it's worth realising this fact of historical contingency. How we interpret it is another matter. But I think it's important to be aware of it. But as I said, at a certain point, or over time, there evolved a, a demolition or flattening of hierarchy, hierarchy of values, hierarchy of strivings, actually an inversion of hierarchy. So there's the affirmation then of ordinary life, work, said work, production, family life, and um, inversion because higher aims and strivings were put down, were criticised. To some extent a flattening and to some extent an, an inversion evolved of that original hierarchy, that original hierarchy of values. In Francis Bacon, in a way, the founder of the scientific revolution, one of them, and you know, for him, science was not the higher pursuit of knowledge, the higher quest uh, to penetrate the mysteries of of the universe, of the cosmos. Science was for the sake of of technological power over nature, in the service of ordinary life. So all this um, 
all these uh, trends and movements and developments in history, or through history, m- made it uh, less possible uh, to have, conceive of, feel a certain way towards something higher or more important than life, than preser- preserving one's life, than uh, ordinary existence, work, production, family. And again, the question I have is, what does that do to our sense and our idea of human being, of our humanity? And again, with soul-making dharma, you know, what does that offer us or open out in terms of possibility for what we might sense and feel and conceive of as higher or larger or more important than, say, having a long life or surviving uh, physically or um, having more pleasant than unpleasant sensations or reducing pain or whatever. Soul-making dharma... um, should, if one's practicing right, go right to the heart of that question. And and it should open out a sense of that. For me, very, very uh, potently and clearly, it should, um, in what soul-making dharma practice opens, that, that, that should be one of the things that it opens. The sense of something or things whatever you're going to call them, dimensions or directions that are higher, larger, more important than my living a long life, than my survival, more important than my uh, not being in pain or reducing pain or whatever. So... This question, you know, what we talk about this different, providing different, or attempting to provide different dimensions, or not providing any dimensions. And, and the question today is, what is the result um, of any of those dimensions, or the refusal to provide dimensions? What's the result with respect to what we might call anthropology, and you know, our, our idea of what it means to be a human being? What we've been talking about today. What is the result also, of course, for theology, for our sense of divinity or Buddha nature? Or what's, our, what's the result for our sense of existence? So the different ideas of dimensions or the refusal of dimension will influence, will have an impact on certainly the theologies and the sense of existence, but also on the sense of human being. And, of course, it works the other way different sense of human being or theology or whatever um, will provide or or disallow certain dimensions and non-dimensions for the ethics. So I haven't talked much about Aristotle in, in this series of talks. I've talked about him uh, a little bit, in, at least a little bit in the Sina and Soul talks, but Aristotelian virtue ethics um, were, as far as I understood, ground in a notion of the common good of, of, the, of the polis, of the city-state, the nation, um, basically the city-state, like Athens or wherever. So this is what, you know, uh, a virtue had to be something which contributed um, 
uh, or at least didn't take away from the common good of the city-state. I mean, actually, he left out slaves and other strata of that society, so it was it was even a smaller view. But you know, it's curious: is the dimensionality there is kind of is it in lateral number, in, in how many people, or in the service of the nation? Uh, or the city-state, as if that's a kind of transcendent object in itself, as that provides the the dimensionality. Is that related to the citizen ethic, perhaps, that Hannah Arendt was talking about? The question is, what does it do to our sense of human being and our humanity? Or if we think about Pali Canon, uh, Buddha Dharma, and the kind of cosmology of karma, of rebirth, and the, the rationale of simplification. And these as reason for ethics. Well, if you act unethically, you'll get a bad rebirth. You'll reap bad karma. If you act ethically, you'll reap good karma. And if you act ethically, your, uh, you know, the complexities of your life and also the agitations and the busyness of your mind will simplify, and that simplification will allow practice and samadhi and then panya and then liberation. You can see the purpose of the ethics is is revealing something here as well, and that way of understanding Pali Dharma, you know, the the. Um, there's a kind of pragmatic reason for ethics. There's a pragmatic reason for sila in concern for one's karma, in that with that kind of cosmological notion, and also in in because it will it will simplify the consciousness and that, and and the life, and that will allow meditation and insight and liberation. So it's practical, but there's no ontological dimensionality of grounding for the ethics there. Actually. Um, something similar you get in Locke partly in John Locke there's a kind of grounding in a uh, a rational pragmatic hedonism a lot of people really objected to what he was writing Um, in a way you get that in Epicureanism it's like just follow the pleasure and in good good, you know uh, charitable uh, interpretations of Epicureanism it's like it's just like Pali Canon uh, Buddhism it's like like following the jhanas, I'll, I'll take this pleasure over the pleasure of senses. And then the, the second jhana is better kind of pleasure than the, the first, etc. And one goes up the rungs of the ladder, letting go of what has come before, because I've got a better pleasure. Until one actually lets go completely, because one's reached the, the highest kind of pleasure. And then one lets go into the kind of so-called pleasure of Nibbāna. So there's a kind of rational, pragmatic hedonism which people um, vilify John Locke for and also um, Epicurus for, and Epicureanism at least, um, but uh, has its parallels in Pali Canon Buddhism. But the grounding is that's pragmatic rather than what we could call ontological. There's no sense of the good or this higher order that we're, uh, that's, that's giving us our ethics by, in some kind of 
parallelism. I mean, it might be, we could say, rebirth in a Brahma realm is a kind of deification, so it becomes an ontological thing. That would be stretching it a little bit. Again, if we take the, the dimension or the possible dim- dimension of rationality, rationality as a dimension, and just to point out, um, people think of this in very different ways. So that for some of, say, the, the German idealist Kant and others, rationality might have had, our capacity for rationality had, might have had this quasi-numinous character, quasi-holy character. It's a kind of divine faculty or divinely given certain faculty. So that rationality itself um, was almost a, potentially, in our words, a kind of almost a erotic imaginal object, perhaps. So what do all these ideas do for all these ideas about dimensions and non-dimensions, what they do for the sense of human being, of humanity, of our humanity? In Platonic ethics... In Platonic cosmology, as I said, uh, almost every level of being is refracting and reflecting somehow the good, the divine. It's existing as in an analogous way. The world is analogy, the world is sign, the world is partial expression, is refraction, reflection of, in, in a kind of hierarchical order, of, of the divine, of the good, of the ultimately good. And we can approach that, we can climb that ladder, we can read read the cosmos, if you like. And that reading of the cosmos, that soul resonating with the theophanies, with the signs and the forms and the refractions and reflections of the good, the divine, allows us to draw closer to the divine. And uh, we ourselves can become analogies of our image of our angel, or our daemon, and in that way reflect, refract the divine, grow towards the divine. So there's also this eros and um, ineffitability of this transcendent good, this transcendent divine, where, uh, as human beings, we're connected intimately in our being with that divinity, with that Buddha nature, Dharmakaya, but we're also separate from it. We're separate and not separate. We're in the image and likeness. We're analogy. My life, if I live it with soul, is an analogy to my angel. It's a reflection of my angel which reflects God, which reflects the Buddha nature, which expresses uh, an attribute of the Dharmakaya. So there's both. We're separate and not separate but we're connected in this very intimate uh, way by analogy, or potentially by analogy in our being. And there's this possibility of direction, of growth towards the divine, of theosis, as they call it in the Orthodox Church. And so you can hear that whole way of thinking about dimensionality um, and as a grounding for ethics, that... Uh, uh, construes the human being and our humanity in, in quite a powerful way that's quite consistent and relatively consistent, much more similar, let's say, to uh, what, what we've 
God in the soul-making dharma, what can possibly open out for us in soul-making dharma and practice. The senses we can have that open. Rather than the ideas we start from, the senses that can open through practice. Again, it's a phenomenological approach rather, from, from start, rather than starting with metaphysics. When we look at all this, you say, is whatever valid reason or support or dimension for ethics one tries to provide, it, it tends to be related to the conceived purpose of ethics, for sure, but also the conceived purpose of life. So if you think about Pali Canon Buddha Dharma, the purpose of life is very much, the purpose of ethics is very much um, the, the given reasons for the purpose of ethics are very much connected to, or the principle given reasons for the purpose of ethics are very much connected with what well, what is the purpose of life, what is the purpose of existence? It's to reach Nibbana. And in these other systems as well. If you think through that. And then I said there's been this divorce of ethics from law. But does does the way we think about ethics certainly um, it's related, as I said, to the conceived purpose of ethics. The way we the way we try and provide dimensionality for ethics is certainly related related to the conceived purpose of ethics and the conceived purpose of, of our existence. What does that imply about how we set up law? and the purpose of the law, and how we conceive of the law. All this is connected. And depending on how we think of this, the the connection still holds, so it will follow through to how we think of life, how we think of ethics, what dimensionality we give, then how we think of what the law is actually trying to accomplish, what legal system is trying to accomplish. All is connected. Again, if we just ask this question, so what, what's possible, not just what's possible for us as human beings, what's possible in terms of viable, valuable, and tenable ways we can conceive of and sense our humanity. What's possible there? What viable, tenable, and valuable ways are there for us to conceive of and to sense our human being today, now? You know, so much is going to depend on that. Whether we feel blessed and our sense of existence is blessed and the sense of the cosmos is blessed, all that depends on these questions, depends on these directions and decisions, orientations. If I want to live with a sense of blessedness, how can I 
support that possibility really genuinely deeply robustly thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate